Hi, Betfolio Voice listeners. I am thrilled to have you here for this episode, sponsored in part by Alango, where I'm joined once again by the fantastic Susan Little to discuss parasites in our pets. This is the second of four episodes discussing parasites. In our last talk, you may remember, Dr. Little broke down the basics of intestinal parasite diagnosis, treatment, and prevention in our dogs. And in this episode, we'll have a similar discussion centered around heartworms. As many of us have seen in practice, no two patients are the same when it comes to heartworm disease. So Dr. Little will help us understand kind of a nuanced approach to prevention and treatment in our individual patients. First, a bit about Dr. Little and then we'll jump in. Dr. Susan Little is a Regents Professor and Krull Ewing Chair in Veterinary Parasitology at the Center for Veterinary Health Sciences at Oklahoma State University. She's recognized internationally as a leader in veterinary parasitology and vector-borne disease. She teaches veterinary parasitology and oversees a research program centered on tick-borne diseases and zoonotic parasites. She's founder and co-editor of the National Center for Veterinary Parasitology, a past president of the American Association of Veterinary Parasitologists, and an emeritus member and past president of the Companion Animal Parasite Council, or CAPSI. I'm so excited to bring you this episode. Let's go ahead and jump in. All right, we're back again with Dr. Susan Little. Dr. Little, thanks again for joining us. We talked a little bit about intestinal parasites uh, with respect to dog parks and family pets last time, and this time we're talking about heartworm prevention. So thanks again for being with us. Yeah, thanks for doing this with me. My pleasure. Like I have all the questions. So we have good data now on intestinal parasites in dog parks, but we really don't have a similar study on heartworm prevention. Can you talk about why that is? What makes heartworms more challenging to understand? Yeah, so we would love to have sort of a mirror study or a parallel study on heartworm infection across the U.S., but to sample dogs for heartworm is more invasive, of course, and so it's one thing to ask for the owner to donate the feces. It's another to show up in your van and ask to collect a blood sample from dogs. So we don't have the access to a cross-section of dogs across the U.S. in order to really get that good prevalence data, we do have robust data sets. And so the CAPC, the Companion Animal Parasite Council, manages a really nice data resource for veterinarians. It's available at capcvet.org. But that data, which tells us prevalence of heartworm going back almost a decade now, all that data is from well-cared-for pet dogs that go to the veterinarian that are tested by the veterinarian. And so many of those dogs are on preventive. They're tested year after year. If they're found to be infected, hopefully they'll be treated. So that's, that data is about as good as it gets. So it's probably an underestimate, or we were confident it's an underestimate of the true prevalence of heartworm infection in just a cross-section of dogs. And then the other data set we have is shelter dogs. And shelter medicine does a wonderful job in the U.S., and they produce some amazing um, research publications that let us know how common heartworm is in, in dog shelters and animal shelters. So we know that shelter dogs have heartworm, but they tend to be younger than pet dogs. And so even the prevalence in shelter dogs is likely an underestimation because they've only had a year or two to become infected with heartworm before hopefully they go out to, to their forever home before they're adopted. So they haven't had as many seasons necessarily to be infected. So what I would love to see is a cross-section of pet dogs across the U.S. and find out what is the true prevalence. And we've had an opportunity to do that regionally in a few places, um, usually following a national 
natural disaster where a lot of dogs are moved to temporary shelters. And so as part of their care, they do need to be tested. They do need to be evaluated. And we find very high prevalence of heartworm in those, in those situations, higher than what's seen in pet dogs or shelter dogs. But we don't yet have that cross-sectional study of real pet dogs. Um, that includes the majority of pet dogs that are not on preventive, right? We know that intellectually, we know that most pet dogs in the US are not on a heartworm preventive. They're out there getting infected year after year, but we just don't know what the true prevalence is. Sure. It's, yeah, we see a lot of it here in Florida. Right. So what do we know about the prevalence of heartworms in pet dogs at this point? Is that, are we seeing that change over time? Yeah, and that's a really great question. So even though we know we're underestimating, we can still watch the shift over time to see what patterns are developing. And some studies show it does appear to be increasing in pet dogs. So heartworm prevalence is increasing in some areas. And we worry about you know, increased transmission risk. Do we have more mosquitoes? Do we have therefore more infections happening? We worry about resistance. We know we have resistant strains of Dyerflaria imidis that are able to infect dogs in spite of the fact the dog was given a preventive. So if you had resistance, you would see increased prevalence. So that's one, that's one piece. And then there's some suggestion that rescued and rehomed dogs that are moving from the South to other areas of the country, just like with hookworms, they take their heartworm with them. So that's an increased risk to the communities where they end up. And there's some good publications that show that areas that take in a lot of dogs from the South, we see their heartworm prevalence go up um, and it's just, they're moving in, right? With, with heartworm, so that can happen. But we just completed a study, published a study looking at 17 years of data that used the same approach for testing dogs, similar practices, similar demographics across the US, and the prevalence of heartworm actually decreased in pet dogs, especially in the Southern US. So that, you know, I want to be happy. That's awesome, right? If we actually see a decrease in prevalence and what we're doing is working. But I wonder if it just means that the attentive owners and the veterinarians who are really worried about heartworm have just upped their game. They're being even more attentive and they're focused on it more. They're testing more frequently. They're really educating even more enthusiastically about the importance of heartworm preventive. And that could be driving an apparently lower prevalence or decrease in prevalence in the pet dog data. So I don't know if it's real. I don't feel like the risk has gone away, but we have seen that, that decrease over the last couple of decades. What we really need to do is get at those pet dogs that aren't getting care, right? And try and understand from them. But we do, we do see patterns for sure in the pet dog data. That's important. And we all know that mosquitoes create the heartworm risk and heartworm is more common in the Southeastern US for that reason, where mosquitoes are active for longer during the year. Does that mean there's areas where you see a low prevalence where it's not as important? So I would say, I mean, heartworm matters everywhere. It's diagnosed in all states, right? We need to think about heartworm everywhere, but it matters more some places than others. And Florida is the perfect example where veterinarians know how important heartworm is. They've done an excellent job of testing and prevention and year-round prevention. And because of that, the skew between what we see in sh shelter dogs before they've re received care from the shelter veterinarian, their prevalence is very high in Florida. Pet dogs, it's actually very low. And if you look at the capsivet.org data, you'll see that reflected, that the prevalence in pet dogs in Florida is extremely low compared to what it should be based on shelter dog data. If you switch to out west where heartworm prevention is less diligently practiced and recommended by veterinarians, 
There's actually counties in Northern California that have a higher heartworm prevalence rate than the state of Florida in pet dogs. That should not be the case, but that's what happens when there's lack of prevention. So yes, prevention matters everywhere. Yes, it matters more in the Southeast, but in areas where it's embraced, dogs benefit, pet dogs benefit. So it would really make a difference if we could get that sort of universal prevention approach. And then of course, the other reasons not to be complacent about heartworm, no matter where you practice, is dogs travel, right? We know they travel with their owners. The percent of dogs that travel with their owners like on vacation has doubled in the last 10 years. People want their dogs with them. So those snowbirds that are coming from the Northeast or the Midwest down to Florida or Texas, you know, they're coming when there's heartworm transmission, but their veterinarian back home isn't aware that they need to be on preventive necessarily. And so that creates a risk. And then of course, dogs with heartworm can travel anywhere with their owners and bring the risk into the community where it hasn't been before. So all that travel leads to more dogs at risk. And so we really need to keep them protected. And then the final thing is that it is tied to intestinal parasite control. And so just as we talked about with hookworms and whipworms, right? If you don't have that year-round prevention, the whipworms don't care that it's winter time. The roundworms don't care that it's winter time. They do just fine in the colder months. So preventing on all fronts. Exactly. So I can't, I hate to keep harping on the southeastern US. I'm just here. I probably diagnose heartworm. I hate to say this. I probably at least once a week. Oh my um, goodness. Yeah, it's you know fairly common. And there's there's times where, you know, of course we go through waves where it's not quite that much, but recently I feel like it's been at least once a week that I've gotten a positive. So, um, so harping back on Florida here, <laughs> we test annually. Um, but you know, in areas where it is less common, do we need annual testing? How important is that? Yeah. So this is something that the heartworm research community has looked at really closely. And the consensus is just to cut to the chase. The consensus is yes, we need to test annually. Absolutely. That's been the recommendation of the heartworm society since the early 2000s. There were a couple years there in the very early 2000s, I think it was the 2003 Heartworm Society guidelines where they said, you know, if the client is compliant and you can document through purchase records, they've been on prevention year round, then you can test every two to three years. But they changed that just a couple of years later when the next iteration of the guidelines came out because so many dogs were turning up positive. So annual testing is really key. And owners know, I think the general public knows that early detection and early treatment leads to better outcomes. That's true in most medical situations. And it's certainly true in heartworm. The sooner we know the dog is infected and then can intervene with treatment, the, the better life that dog will have because the less pathology that can accumulate over time, right? So we don't wanna delay our heartworm diagnosis for two or three years because we're trying to save the owner uh, you know, a few dollars at the annual exam. And so testing annually is really important. Definitely, of course, in Florida. And that might be one of the reasons the prevalence in pet dogs is lower in Florida because that annual testing is part of the culture, right? So other areas where they're not doing that, those dogs that are infected, it's not just that pathology gets worse in those individual dogs where the infection hasn't been identified. They're out there in the world infecting mosquitoes that are going on to put other dogs at risk. And so they're creating these little mini epidemics, these many outbreaks throughout their communities and finding them sooner would sort of um, be able to shut that down. And then of course the preventives 
compliance is always an issue. Preventives aren't always given. And then resistance is real. As I said before, even with heartworm, resistant strains can travel with the dogs where they're relocated. So even a dog on preventive may not be protected from a resistant strain that just moved into the neighborhood. And we would only know that by testing regularly. Absolutely. And we always hear about, you know, if they miss one dose, they can come back heartworm positive. And it has truly amazed me how many times I've actually seen that happen. Yeah. They come back positive and you can see, you know, where everything was given. And then there's that one dose and sure enough, here you have a positive dog, but you know, to kind of support what you're saying there with the annual testing, we usually end up catching it pretty early. So it's much easier to treat and um, better outcomes. So whatever, what the research is showing, I can say I've seen that clinically be the case as well. Yeah. Can you review the options for heartworm prevention that are out there for dogs right now? What are some of the key things to consider in the different approaches? Sure, sure. So I think first of monthly versus long-term injectable. And the difference with that is the intestinal parasite control, right? So with the six month or 12 month injectable, you get heartworm prevention for six months or 12 months, which is amazing, but you don't get intestinal parasite control for six months or 12 months. You get hookworms, of course, when the injection is given, but not ascarids, not whipworms, and not hookworms when the dog goes to the dog park, you know, a few months later gets infected. They're going to keep those infections for the, till it's the next year, till it's time for the next injection, and they'll keep their whipworms and, and ascarids forever. So monthly gets intestinal parasite control. And then among the monthlies, kind of the next differentiating feature for me is whipworm. And so if, if you need and want whipworm control, and I would argue that a dog would want whipworm control, then um, milbomycin, either oral milbomycin or the topical moxidectin are really the only two options you have. There's a few different formulations, but it's milbomycin and topical moxidectin. The injectable moxidectin, I know it's confusing, it works for heartworm prevention, but not for whipworms when it's given. And so there's not efficacy, it's a lower, active level in the dog. And so it doesn't have that whipworm efficacy. It's just the topical moxidectin. And then among the monthlies, you can also think of tapeworms as a differentiating feature. So some of the monthlies have praziquantel and some of, many of them don't. And so you have to think about that. What's the tapeworm risk? What's the tapeworm concern? And then do you want to combine it with flea and tick control? We don't have an all-in-one product, meaning something that will get fleas, ticks, heartworm, whipworms, roundworms, hookworms, tapeworms. We're, we're moving towards that. And we certainly have flea, tick, some intestinal parasites, heartworm. You know, there are products that, that are headed in that direction, but we still don't have a, a product that prevents heartworm that also controls all intestinal parasites. And so that's the, and fleas and ticks. So that's the, that's the concern. And so it might be, decisions might be made based on what else you're doing for fleas and ticks, what else you're doing for um, intestinal parasites. Sure. And we're talking about all these different preventatives and the options that are out there. One of the things I've always heard is that if a dog is infected with heartworm, that changes which preventatives we can use and which ones are safe. Um, Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. I think some of the concerns about making sure we're using a safe preventive in a dog with heartworm really harkens back to something uh, before our time, which was diethylcarbamazine. That was the daily heartworm preventive. So it was filarabits, or even before that, it was a liquid that was put on the food. And a dog with heartworm, given diethylcarbamazine, could have a very severe immediate reaction and was likely to. 
So then we have macrocyclic lactone monthly preventives. And the concern is again, a high microfilaremic dog might have a shock-like reaction if given a macrocyclic lactone. That reaction has been reported with all the preventives that are out there. So it's not more likely or less likely, or it's never been shown to be more or less likely with a certain active, but there's certainly concerns and things that show up on social media and things people post about and talk about, but there's not data that shows a preventive is more safe or less safe. Sometimes if, you, if a dog's infected with heartworms, someone, a veterinarian might make a decision to use a preventive that will have an effect on the adult worms over time or use a preventive that'll clear the microfilaria so that the dog's not infecting more mosquitoes that can infect other dogs. But that's different than a, than a safety decision, right? So the preventives we have are safe to use in dogs infected with heartworm, but we also wanna make sure we're treating those dogs because if we just use a preventive and don't treat them, then we're contributing to selection for resistance. Um, and then one of the preventives we have, and it's the topical moxidectin product, moxidectin and midocloprid, the, the topical or transdermal moxidectin will clear the microfilaria, and it's the only label-approved way, the FDA-label-approved way we have to clear microfilaria from a dog with heartworm. And interestingly, when that data was collected, there were no adverse events seen. So these dogs have high microfilaremia. They're treated with topical moxidectin. The microfilaria go away. And usually the follow-up test is seven days later. No microfilaria seen, and yet no adverse events seen either. So... so you know, when we're talking safety, you know, maybe not just limited to the, the topical moxidextin and the ivermectin, it's, are we okay then to, you know, reach for um, milbamycin or something along those lines? Would that be safe to use in our heartworm positive dogs? Yeah, it is safe to use milbamycin, um, ivermectin, selamectin, moxidectin injectable, moxidectin topical, uh, oral moxidectins available for dogs, like all of those are, are safe in heartworm infected dogs. If you have a patient with a really high microfilaremia, regardless of what product is used, I would recommend that that dog be observed that the first time the preventive is given, it be given in practice. And then just watch in the morning, you just watch the dog for an eight hour day. If there's no reaction, you can discharge them, send them home. The reactions when they occur are, are rare. And so it's not something we can study in, in research dogs, right? So we can't, it's not like we can infect eight dogs, get them high microfilaremia and then make the reaction happen because it's just not that common. But if you observe a dog as you're clearing the microfilaria, you can respond to it and provide the care that you need. And if there's concern, if there's a high microfilaremia, then pre-medicating with diphenhydramine, making sure the prednisone's already on board, that'll mitigate any reaction that you'll see from the death of the microfilaria. So just doing it knowingly. I think when it happens a lot of times the dog's not tested for heartworm first, is given a preventive, or maybe, you know, the given the preventive goes home, the owner gives it, goes to sleep, and then the dog has the reaction in the middle of the night and there's nobody there to help the to help the patient. So there's ways to manage it when there is that high microfilaremia and that concern. I'm learning so much from these podcasts. I love it. So when we're talking about treating, one of the things that comes to mind is doxycycline. What are your thoughts about doxycycline use in dogs infected in heartworm? Specifically, I know at the recommended dose, the 10 mg per kg twice a day um, that I've seen from the American Heartworm Society, I've had some dogs that just GI-wise can't tolerate that dose. What do you recommend in those situations? So the doxycycline can be given with food, and sometimes that's enough to help uh, mitigate the 
GI side effects. It can be used just once a day. It's of course, it's an off-label use of the antibiotic, right? It's not label approved to clear the Wolbachia, although we're all familiar with why we're doing it and that it does. So you can back off to once a day. You could try decreasing the dose, right? Just to try and get some doxycycline on board to clear those Wolbachia. But also we used to treat dogs without doxycycline. Um, there was a time a few years ago when the price was really spiraling out of control and it would limit whether or not owners could treat their, their pets for heartworm. And so you don't have to include it as part of the treatment. I would certainly recommend trying. It adds a lot of value, but it's not absolutely necessary for treating heartworm. And so you can adjust the dose, um, the regimen, how frequently it's given, um, or omit it after a few weeks if the dog's really struggling, but still continue with the rest of the treatment protocol. So the prednisone and the malarcinine. As we're speaking of kind of alternatives when it comes to treating heartworm disease, what kind of alternatives do we have when treating dogs with heartworms? You know, sometimes we encounter owners with financial limitations and we know what the recommendations are from the American Heartworm Society and from CAPC, which are incredibly helpful. But when we do have to change our protocol around, where do we have give there? Like, you know, what can we change? Yeah, no, we get that question a lot and it's tough. And it's one of the reasons that prevention is so important is because treatment is expensive. It's financially expensive. It's also hard on the dog. It's just a lot to put a dog through. And so we would love to have alternatives. And if there were alternatives that I thought were safe and a good idea, I would be promoting them. But really there is nothing better than malarsamine at present for clearing adult worms from dogs. And that's what we need to do is we need to take those you know, foot long nematodes that are living in the pulmonary artery and get them out. And to do that, we have to use malarsamine. Luckily, we don't have a shortage anymore. There's not, it's no trouble to order it. So for a few years there, it was touch and go if we could even get the, the um, treatment that we needed. But Marsween has to be part of it. So I would not sacrifice that. The other thing I wouldn't change is the three dose protocol. So one injection and then one month later, two injections, 24 hours apart. We know from all the data that's out there, that's the best way to clear the highest number of worms. But we also know it's the safest way to treat a dog. So those are the, the two pieces, using malarsamine, using the three-dose protocol um, that really makes a difference. Certainly we use um, doxycycline, which usually isn't that expensive. And we talked a little bit about how to manage GI signs with that. Prednisone, which usually isn't that expensive. So I would include that. Where the cost can run out of control sometimes is with the diagnostic workup. And if I'm treating a dog for heartworm, I wanna see what the lungs look like, right? Before I give that first injection but the radiographs can be expensive. And so that's a place that many veterinarians have decided to cut, to cut costs. Another thing that can add to the, I don't know, the frustration level of the client or the length of the treatment is the pretreatment that's done with preventive and doxycycline prior to that first injection. And so one of the protocols that's out there suggests waiting two months before giving that first malarsamine injection. But by waiting two months, you know, it's extending the time that the owner has to worry, crate confine, exercise restrict, all those types of things. The recommendations from the Companion Animal Parasite Council suggest starting treatment, adulticide treatment, as soon as medically practical. So if the dog is stable and can tolerate the treatment, giving that first injection sooner, maybe after just a month of doxycycline and a few weeks of pred, you know, earlier in the 
in the course of treatment can, can make a difference. We don't have a definitive study where someone took a large group of dogs with heartworm and waited two months to treat half of them and treated the other half right away. So that's why there's not uh, overall consensus on what's the best approach. So treating sooner certainly can make a difference. And I'm not saying don't radiograph dogs. I'm just saying that when you have pushback from owners, that might be one area to, to cut. If it's a young, healthy dog with no clinical signs, class one heartworm disease, you know, then we do maybe less of the diagnostic workup um, moving towards treatment if, if cost is a concern. If it were my dog, I'd be doing everything, so. Sure. Well, another fantastic educational podcast. I always learn so much when I talk to you. So thank you again for, for joining us. Any final thoughts on heartworm disease? Thanks so much, Cassie. This was great. I would say great resources are out there. As veterinarians know, we have the Companion Animal Parasite Council at capsivet.org. And then we have the American Heartworm Society at heartwormsociety.org. And so there is no shortage of resources, really well-validated research-based resources. The tricky thing with treating dogs for heartworm is that patients aren't all alike. So we can't take one protocol and force every dog into it. So, you know, a one-year-old 60-pound lab that's otherwise healthy that has one worm isn't the same as a 10-year-old Jack Russell Terrier with 50 worms. Those are very different patients. And so I don't think there's one protocol that works for every dog. The really key thing for me about heartworm is making sure you're tailoring your treatment to the patient that's in the room, not trying to follow a protocol lockstep but just recognizing that this patient is an individual with individual medical needs um, and that you're the expert on what's best in that patient. Thank you, Dr. Little, for joining us and a big thank you to Elenco for sponsoring this episode. If you'd like to find more episodes like this, click on the education tab on Vetfolio's website. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this session as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.